Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. First dropped the Mueller report, and now the other shoe. Whoa, some Democrats starting to come around on impeachment in the wake of the Mueller report. I believe Congress should take the steps towards impeachment. Do you think the House should move for impeachment? I think he's made it pretty clear that he deserves impeachment. Candidates Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg there after being asked to weigh in at CNN town halls Monday. As I write, there is still no consensus in the House of Representatives on whether to move on the issue, with impeachment highly unlikely to yield a conviction in the Senate and a big election just around the corner. Many in the leadership are downplaying impeachment talk on moral or political grounds, or neither or both. Here's House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler speaking with Chuck Todd on NBC's Meet the Press. Why haven't you opened an impeachment inquiry? Or, in fairness, is that what you're doing right now? I don't think we're doing that. We may get to that. We may not. As I said before, it is our job to go to go through all the evidence, uh, to, to, to all the information the we can get. the politics impact this, though? And to go where the evidence leads yeah. us. I'm sorry? How much does the politics impact this? You have a legal case that you believe this happens and you should do it, but the politics dictate something else. How much is that going to influence this decision? I don't know. That, that'll come down the road when, 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 when we is see what we have. Is this in Nancy Pelosi's hands? For those who have been closely following the slow drip of evidence accumulating for more than two years and vindicated in their horror of Trump by the Mueller report, let's see what happens is not exactly a rallying cry. As those doing the political math come up with different answers, many citizens are sensing yet another episode of thwarted justice, and not for the first time in recent years. Paul Waldman is a columnist and senior writer for The American Prospect. He cites the Clinton impeachment as a kind of cautionary tale for the Democratic leadership. Yeah, I think that there are some people in the Democratic Party who may have learned the lessons of the Clinton impeachment a little too well. The story that we tell about that is that the Republicans impeach Clinton and the American people punish the Republican Party for doing this kind of partisan process that wasn't good for the country. The problem is that there are a lot of differences between that situation and this one. So, for instance, Clinton was extremely popular. He had approval ratings in some cases over 70%. Trump is extremely unpopular. His approval rating is around 40%. Also, the conduct in question there was really rooted in a affair that Clinton had with Monica Lewinsky, and he lied about it in a deposition. But after a year of constant discussion, the conclusion that the American people essentially came to was that he was kind of scummy, but it didn't merit removing him from office. We don't know if the American public debated it for a year, what conclusion they would come to about Trump, but the allegations at least relate much more closely to his conduct in office. So however a Trump impeachment might end up, it's unlikely it would work out exactly like the Clinton impeachment did. Should these decisions necessarily be based on political pragmatism to begin with versus, say, just pure accountability? If Donald Trump deserves to be impeached, then Donald Trump should be impeached. Now, of course, we can't ignore the political considerations, but there's a strong case to be made that the process itself is a way of making a statement, of saying that it's not acceptable for 
a presidential candidate to accept the aid of a hostile foreign power. It's not acceptable for him to attempt to obstruct justice, even if in many cases his aides prevented him from carrying out the obstructive act. Throughout the Trump administration, there's been such a deluge of misdeeds and norms being broken and rules being ignored that sometimes we just decide that this thing is not worth fighting about because there are so many other things that are going wrong. But ultimately, at some point, you have to stand up and make a defense of the system itself. The GOP has been working for a long time to cultivate a certain narrative about a rigged system and political bias, a deep state, and impeachment by the Democrats will be just the smoking gun they're looking for to prove, yep, he's just being set up for purely partisan reasons. A lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about what will make Trump voters angry, looking at what they see on Fox News or here on Rush Limbaugh and other conservative talk radio makes them very, very gun shy because they say, if we awaken this beast, we'll get another version of 2016. The Democrats are being driven mad. They're operating from a contrived conspiracy born and supported by fake news, and they can't give it up for whatever reasons. The problem is that they have a remarkable ability within that conservative media system to create controversy out of anything. The biggest issue in the 2016 election was whether Hillary Clinton used the wrong email. The idea that you could avoid the wrath of the Trump supporters by not going down the road of impeachment, but say investigating him in other ways, I just don't think that bears out. Hearings in the House would force the GOP to line up behind Trump in the face of what will be just a litany of damning evidence. Doesn't that argue for going ahead with proceedings? Yeah, I think it would. Events in politics can have a power that things like a 500-page document doesn't necessarily have. You know, if you tuned into Fox during the time after the Mueller report was issued, you would have learned that it was a complete and total exoneration. But if you have an actual event that there are cameras stuck in front of, it's much harder to get people not to see what's actually happening there. Key moments in the Watergate hearings helped turn the public against Richard Nixon. It was Howard Baker saying, What did the president know? And when did he know it? It was John Dean. We have a cancer close to the presidency that's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now. Democrats might reasonably think that if we actually hold impeachment hearings, there will be similar moments that will be impossible for Trump to spin away. The other day I did an MSNBC program, and the guest before me was Democratic Congressman Sean Maloney. Winning the next election, which is the best way to replace this president... Uh, and, and the most efficient one, frankly, and that's where I'm focused. And I watched the social media reaction to that argument, and it was scorching. Some parts of the public just do not want to take no impeachment for an answer. Is there in the political ether a sentiment of thwarted justice that at this moment makes political restraint seem like cowardice and impunity? There's a feeling that the Republicans have been so effective at rigging the system that you can't rely on the system. You know, in two of the last five elections, the Democrat got more votes, yet the Republican wound up 
in the Oval Office. You have the Republicans refusing to allow Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee to be considered. You've got Republicans in states all across the country aggressively gerrymandering who are passing voter suppression laws that make it more difficult for especially African-Americans to get to the polls or to be registered. You've got a Supreme Court that is probably going to allow the Trump administration on false pretenses to add a citizenship question to the census. And so Democrats, I think, don't even trust that the system will work in a fair way and deliver them a fair outcome. The Democratic leadership, at least, seems to believe in a political penalty for a fruitless impeachment effort, but an actual electoral benefit for deliberation and restraint. Clearly, the GOP has looked at the same data, and they've come to an entirely different calculus. Why do they read the political tea leaves so differently? It may partly have its roots in the two parties' approaches to government. Democrats are the party that believes in government. They want government to work. And so a desire from a substantive standpoint to be the party that makes government work gets assimilated as a feeling that the public is going to see that we're the responsible ones, and they will eventually reward us for that. Republicans, the party that thinks that government can't do anything right, and when government is dysfunctional, that's actually okay with them because it makes their argument for them. You'll notice Republicans don't spend much time or energy worrying about how they can appeal to Democrats. You know, Democrats are always wondering, how can we get that guy in the Make America Great Again hat sitting in a diner in Ohio? Part of this also is that we live in an age of intense polarization. There are so few independent voters who are going to be persuaded one way or another that the most important thing is whether your side is energized, angry even, and whether the other side is more passive. If you have taken an oath of office to preserve and protect the Constitution, is this even a choice? The thing about the Constitution is that it's pretty vague. You know, it doesn't define what high crimes and misdemeanors are. It's just a few words and we have to keep figuring out as history proceeds what we think those words mean. That means that all of us can decide that whatever we think is going to be most politically advantageous is also the thing that is most morally right and the thing that is demanded by the Constitution. Paul, thank you very much. My pleasure. Paul Waldman is an opinion writer for The Washington Post's Plumline blog. We've had only two presidential impeachment trials in the Senate, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, both ending in acquittals. And Richard Nixon resigned after the House Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment, but before a vote in the full House. But while we have little experience with this presidential removal apparatus, there is plenty of history, going back to the framers who wrote the measure into our Constitution. Jeffrey Engel is founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University and co-author of Impeachment and American History. He says that the authors of the Constitution, having just freed themselves from a tyrant, wanted to make sure in their new United States there'd be a way to counter what seemed to be an inevitable impulse toward tyranny. They just presumed that anyone who had power would, of course, be tempted to abuse it, which is one of the reasons why they put a mechanism in the Constitution to remove a person who stops being a president who looks after the people. 
so that we wouldn't end up with our own King George. They really understood basically as a fundamental part of human nature that people with power would want more. That's the whole basis for how they set up the branches of the Constitution. We oftentimes talk of the branches of the Constitution as a separation of powers. I actually like to think of it more as competing powers, that the founders believe that if they put power in different places, and because everyone would want to accumulate more power, that basically would make every branch of the government a check upon the others. But when those checks and balances failed, there was always the possibility of an executive exceeding their constitutional power. So they needed a standard for determining when that threshold had been crossed. But finding that standard was a bit of a conundrum. They wanted to have a check of last resort, but they didn't necessarily want to stifle executive prerogatives. Exactly. In fact, in June of 1787, when the founders really began discussing the question of impeachment and what would be an impeachable offense, one of the first proposals they had was to suggest that they could remove a president for maladministration or, in plain talk, for being a lousy president. In fact, several of the state constitutions at that time afforded the possibility for impeaching an executive before maladministration. And the, the founders, James Madison in particular, argued vehemently that this basically would just give Congress the ability to say, we don't like your policies, therefore we're going to remove you. And they thought an executive should only be removed again when he broke that Lockean bargain when he decided to put himself above the people. A president who's simply lousy, well, he hasn't really done anything against the people. He just stinks at his job. That's something that the voters can handle in four years' time. So they came up with a different phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. Which is a weird one. I mean, it makes you wonder what a high misdemeanor might be. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a capital drunken disorderly. You know what? One of the funny things is that it's a completely normal phrase to the people at the time, which is one of the reasons they didn't need to explain it further. It was a phrase that was used in English common law at the time. When we hear the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, we shouldn't focus on the crimes and misdemeanors portion. We should focus on the high. That is to say, standard crimes are crimes that are committed one person against another. A high crime is something where the, the president does something to actively undermine law or actively undermine the health and well-being of the American people. A crime isn't necessarily an impeachable offense. You know, the example I like to use is a president who jaywalks, and nobody would think a president who's convicted of jaywalking had abused the office and abused the trust of the American people, or at least they shouldn't think that. Therefore, he can commit crimes that are not high crimes, and by the same token, he can commit high crimes that are not necessarily on the books. Now, for clarification, impeachment is undertaken in the House of Representatives. It's a kind of the culmination. After proceedings there, the House either does or doesn't pass articles of impeachment, which I guess is like an indictment or other finding of prima facie evidence that we would be accustomed to in the courts. Then comes the Senate trial. Impeachment is basically saying we see smoke. It's the Senate's job to determine whether or not they're actually is fire. And so, in a sense, the House doesn't have to determine that a high crime existed. They just have to think a high crime may have existed. And it really is, therefore, a political process from the very beginning. Andrew Johnson was the first president to be impeached, but he wasn't the first to face the process. That honor belongs to John Tyler. What did he do to get jammed up with Congress? Well, you know, the fundamental thing that he did to cause himself political problem was become president. He is the first vice president to have assumed office when the president 
passed away. There was a real sense among the original president's cabinet that the new incoming vice president, who really had not been elected president, that his job should be to fulfill the mandate and the agenda of the person who had been elected president. John Tyler completely disagreed. He read the Constitution to say, I am the president. And he did things that the elected Congress did not like. But here's where we get into the critical question of what is an impeachable offense. No one suggested that Tyler actually was committing a high crime to harm the state. Therefore, there was discussion of impeachment in his era, but the impeachment never moved forward because people recognized he might have been a lousy president in their eyes, but he wasn't one who needs to be removed. Now, Andrew Johnson, who took office when President Lincoln was assassinated, was truly vile in some sadly familiar ways. And he was the first president to be successfully impeached. But even though he was widely detested, it didn't happen quickly. The first reason that Johnson was impeached is that he was not Abraham Lincoln. He was put on the ticket by Lincoln basically as a way to try to sew up the wounds of the country as he envisioned a post-Civil War period. Johnson was the only Senate Democrat who did not leave the Senate when secession occurred. He remained loyal to the Union, and Lincoln reached across the aisle to pick Johnson to be his running mate. When Johnson becomes president, therefore, you have a person with a Southern sensibility on race who is president at the same time that there is an increasingly radically Republican Senate and Congress. Johnson had vile ideas on race. He did not believe that African Americans could be proper citizens. He also had a second problem, which is that Johnson was a jerk. Uh, and if this wasn't public radio, I'd use a stronger word. Therefore, when he made his enemies want to remove him from office, there wasn't a great large natural constituency for him. You either didn't like Johnson for his policies or you didn't like Johnson because he was Johnson. Hmm. But he was acquitted. How did he get off? Congress had set up a trap for him. Congress dictated that the president could not fire a member of his cabinet that had been approved by Congress. Johnson, of course, like every other chief executive, believed that he had the right to move and remove people from his cabinet. And in fact, he wanted to remove the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who had been Lincoln's Secretary of War, because Stanton was moving too quickly on what we would call civil rights issues today, much faster than Johnson wanted. Congress passes this law that says the president can't do it. Johnson does it. And then there is a move to impeach him for breaking that law. Now, Two interesting points have to be raised here. The first is that subsequently Supreme Court has ruled time and again that that was an unconstitutional law. But secondly, this doesn't occur until the final months of his presidency. People basically had had enough and set him up to be impeached or at least to be tried really with the election in sight. They couldn't even stomach having him be president for just a few more months. What Johnson and Tyler and Nixon and Clinton seem to have in common is nothing. <laughs> is there a modern standard or do we just make all of this up as we go along? You know, we do make it up as we go along, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you did not know if the president was a member of your own party, if you did not know what party you were a member of, if you didn't know any of the names of anybody involved and you just saw a list of what the president was accused of, if you think a president should not do that, that's the standard that the founders really desired us to employ. All right. Now, if you were to ask me, I would say that President Trump hits the trifecta 
abuse of power, violation of the law, and acting against the interests of the people for his own benefit. From your perspective, is this a case that would have made James Madison go, yep, right now? You know, I've gone back and forth on this question time and again, and there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the founders would have viewed what President Trump is being accused of and what there seems to be evidence of, in the Mueller report especially, of being a person who has committed a high crime. Their standard was somebody who placed themselves above the good of the country and someone who was willing to violate the laws of the country for their own self-interest. They definitely, in my opinion, would have pushed for impeachment. They would have said, yes, there seems to be more than enough smoke here that we need to investigate further. And as House of Representatives, we're handing it off to the Senate to do their constitutional duty and decide whether there's enough fire to remove somebody from office. But you also think that it's a terrible idea to take that course now. If Nancy Pelosi calls me up and says, what would James Madison or George Washington have advised? I am as clear in my mind as anything I've ever been in history that they would have advised impeachment under the present circumstances. If Nancy Pelosi calls me up and says, you're a voter, is this a good idea? I would say, you know, if you do this, it's opening Pandora's box. We have really so few precedents for this kind of experience in American politics. I can't tell you, except for the fact that history suggests this is going to consume all of the political oxygen the country has. So if you want to turn this into your only agenda item, history doesn't give you much guidance for how that's going to turn out. Jeff, thank you very much. It was very good to talk to you. Jeffrey Engel is founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Coming up, how anti-corruption laws are part of America's DNA. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On The Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I thought after two years, we'd be finished with it. No, now the House... This week from the White House lawn, the president's accounting of his enemies' investigations, replete with somehow still astonishing BS. Now, Mueller, I assume, for $35 million, checked my taxes, checked my financials, which are great, by the way. You know they're great. All you have to do is go look at the records. They're all over the place. We don't know if they're great. We do know they're certainly not all over the place. This week, the Treasury Department missed a second deadline to hand over the president's tax returns to House Democrats. Now the House goes and starts subpoenaing. They want to know every deal I've ever done. The White House directed its former head of personnel security to not adhere to a congressional subpoena to answer questions about the administration's handling of security clearances. I think I read where they interviewed 500 people. I say it's enough. 
And on Monday, the commander-in-chief sued his own accounting firm and Elijah Cummings, the Democratic chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, to block the committee from accessing his past financial records. Well, we're fighting all the subpoenas. As the Washington Post reported earlier this week, the lawsuit, quote, amounts to Trump the leader of the executive branch of government, asking the judicial branch to stop the legislative branch from investigating his past. But so much lies in Trump's past and the nation's. Before taking office, the president resigned from the Trump organization and left his sons to run the company, but he profits from it. Zephyr Teachout, author of Corruption in America, told us just weeks after Trump's inauguration that it shows how far we've come from the original intent of the founders, when even a snuff box could offer a whiff of potential corruption. I think Ben Franklin got ensnared by a snuff box, didn't he? He was well-loved by the French court. Uh, In fact, a lot of people were worried about his loyalties. And then when he was leaving his diplomatic tour, he got this really glamorous, diamond-encrusted snuff box and a portrait of the French king. This caused a fair amount of concern and, in fact, was part of the reason that we have in our Constitution the provision called the Emoluments Clause, which prohibits taking gifts as well as offices and titles of nobility from foreign governments. What's an emolument? Uh, Basically, it's situations um, in which you're getting paid by foreign governments. The easiest way to think about it is something of value. This is one of those rare constitutional clauses that tells you how to read it. It includes this phrase, of any kind, whatever. And it's really clear from reading contemporary understandings of the word emoluments that it covered a broad range of situations, including business enterprises. Why were the founders so concerned about corruption. You call it their constant obsession. These are not naive writers of our Constitution. They've experienced what they perceive as the intense corruption of Britain, and they're all steeped in the story that Rome was torn apart from the inside by corruption. It's thumbing its nose at European practice, even though they cared so, so deeply about developing their own trading relations. The anti-corruption principle was so important to Americans that they were willing to sacrifice some comfort and ease in those relationships to have this anti-corruption principle. So going back to the snuff boxes. Yes. What did they decide? How did they thread that needle of forbidding gifts while existing in a world where this was the general custom? to allow Congress to basically bless gifts that came in. Congress would typically say, that's okay, you can keep that snuff box. Or when John Jay got a horse from the government of Spain, Congress gave Jay permission to keep the horse. This congressional check plays this really important role because the American public, through Congress, gets to understand what was the nature of the gift, if there's anything suspicious, if there's any sense that This might actually lead to either an explicit bribe or to influence that would really undermine the integrity of our decision-making. In your book, you emphasize, and this is really important, that the founders forbid presence, not bribes. No exchange or agreement is required to bring it within the ban. It's really clear that the framers did not think that corruption was just quid pro quo or explicit exchanges 
they really understood how humans can be tempted to betray their loyalties without even really being aware of it. So you need rules that, you know, in law we call these bright line rules or prophylactic rules. Rules that basically say you just can't do this category of behavior because there's a significant likelihood that if you're in this category of behavior, something wrong is going to happen. So the category is taking gifts or payments. We're not going to necessarily know which ones are influencing, nor are we going to easily discover which ones there might be an agreement around. But we need to ban the category so that we don't risk corruption. But the founders' anti-corruption vision quickly ran into problems, not in Europe, but on our own shores. I'm thinking of a word that if we were alive 200 years ago, you say we would all have an opinion on. Yazoo. Yazoo, yes. The Yazoo scandal really occupied the press and the public. Everybody had a position on Yazoo. So Yazoo refers to the lands in western Georgia. And the Georgia legislature gives away millions of acres for pennies on an acre to land speculators. Mm -hmm. All of the lawmakers who'd voted for this land giveaway were getting paid by the land speculators. Now, the public threw out every lawmaker who'd voted for the deal. Yes, they actually had a bonfire (laughs) in the Capitol to burn the bill. And the new lawmakers immediately passed a law saying that law was not a law because it was passed through bribery. You can burn the bill and you can pass a law, but you don't get rid of the larger issue, at least not in this case. That's right. The larger issue here is whether a law stops being a law because it was passed in part because of corruption. And this case goes on for years, finally makes it to the Supreme Court. One of my favorite facts about this case is it's the only case I know of where one of the litigators needed time to sober up halfway through oral (laughs) argument. And basically, the the question was, uh, who really owned the land at this point? Was it still held by the people of Georgia? Or was it held by the people who had bought their land ownership from the speculators? So the speculators that had bribed the Georgian legislators sold the land to people who thought they had a legitimate contract. And basically, the court said the contract superseded the anti-corruption concerns raised by Georgia. Yeah, that's right. Justice Marshall, who, by the way, had been a land speculator himself, (laughs) said it's so sad that corruption has crept into our young republic, but it's sort of beyond the scope of this court to pass judgment on what was a fundamentally corrupt contract and what was not. But really until the 1970s, court after court after court understood that protecting against corruption inside our country was one of the jobs of our country and was one of the greatest threats to our country. And then you see that kind of drop away really in the 1970s. So take us there. What happened? So in 1976, the Supreme Court decided a really important case, Buckley versus Vallejo, and struck down some campaign finance laws and set up a two-step process that we've really been living inside ever since. The first step is to ask, when there is a campaign finance rule, 
does that campaign finance rule infringe on freedom of speech? And the second step is to say, if it does, does it, however, serve an anti-corruption interest? Suddenly, it really matters what corruption means. Because if corruption just means explicit quid pro quo, then a lot of what we think of as anti-corruption laws are going to get struck down. So back in the days of the founders, they recognized that something could be corrupt even if it wasn't illegal. Now you have to find an explicit exchange of something for something, a quid pro quo. And only a complete boob would get caught doing that. So much of this exchange is either behind closed doors or through intermediaries or is just assumed. So the kind of ambiguity in human nature, the indirect influence that the founder saw as corruption is now, strictly speaking, only if you have sold your office or your vote. No, that's right. And the loss is enormous. It's you know, certainly a loss of a central part of our heritage as a country. We were founded on an anti-corruption passion. But it was also incredible wisdom. It was an understanding that corruption is this very serious threat to self-government. And we've certainly felt the effects. We felt the effects in the super PACs that have arisen since Citizens United. And we as citizens are left with fewer and fewer tools to fight corruption. Zephyr, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Zephyr Teachout is a law professor at Fordham University and author of the book, Corruption in America. Coming up, who came up with May Day? The answer may surprise you. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Around the world, really nearly everywhere but the U.S., May the 1st is a big deal. It's called International Workers' Day, or May Day. Here in the U.S., it's called This Coming Wednesday. Last year, it was observed in Moscow's Red Square with an orderly parade. In the Philippines, protesters burned President Rodrigo Duterte in effigy. While in Paris, over 200 were arrested when anarchists crashed May Day rallies there. On our shores, it was decidedly more quiet. Although thousands did march in Puerto Rico to protest austerity measures after altercations with police. But really, you'd think the U.S. had very little to do with May Day. In fact, we created it. Donna Haverty-Stack is a professor of history at Hunter College at the City University of New York. She's also the author of America's Forgotten Holiday, May Day and Nationalism, 1867 to 1960. When we spoke to her last year, she began the story in 1886. Labor unions had been fighting for the eight-hour workday for years and years, but they'd only been winning battles city by city. They needed a new strategy. 
This was the era of the second industrial revolution, the rise of corporate capitalism. They needed to come together. And so that was the goal for 1886. Why did these labor unions, going for that big push, choose May 1st? For the building trades, May 1st was the date when the annual contracts were renewed. The goal was they begin organizing in 1884, making demands. Hopefully, they would succeed and they would celebrate on May 1st, 1886. If they did not succeed, they held out the threat of striking on May 1st, 1886, which in many cases happened. Once that date was chosen, the more traditional trade unionists and the anarchists and socialists who have a broader revolutionary goals also tap into the associations of May Day with the spring rites, with gathering flowers, with bringing in the green. With what do the spring rites have to do with labor? Nothing. <laughs> but, 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 but they use it in their iconography, in poetry, in plays, and things that become central to the annual anniversary. So now it's May 1st, 1886. 80,000 people march in Chicago, 30,000 in Baltimore. How many in New York? 30,000 in New York. St. Louis, Baltimore, Akron, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, all across the country workers came out. Union leaders giving speeches and anarchists, Albert Parsons, well-known anarchist in Chicago, uh, was at the head of the march with his wife, Lucy Parsons. They almost didn't participate because in initially when they heard of this movement, for the eight-hour day, they felt it was too small, too, too small. not what they really wanted, which was revolution. But when they saw the momentum, they realized that's where the workers were. They needed to be out in front of it, <laughs> the front of the parade. But it's the anarchists that get even more closely associated with it. Even in our editorial meeting when we were discussing this, someone right. raised... The Haymarket Affair that happened right. a few days after May Day, you note that that association is a manipulation. It's purposefully wrong. It was a peaceful protest in Haymarket Square in Chicago, organized by local anarchists in response to the police killings of six strikers on May 3rd. And initially, I think about a 1,000 people gathered, and as the evening wore on and it started to rain, their numbers dwindled down to about 300. One of the anarchists was speaking on a wagon, and when the police came into the square to order the meeting to disband, there was concern that some of the speech may have been inflammatory. Someone threw a bomb into the square. The bomb killed one police officer immediately. Six other policemen died subsequently of their wounds, most likely from the bullets. The police began firing indiscriminately. Eight anarchists were arrested and tried and convicted for conspiracy, four of whom were executed, and they became martyrs to the anarchist cause. So it was the anarchists that tried to link the two events. The anarchists conflated the two. Socialists embraced that as well because I think they shared a concern about the reactionary nature of the state. And if it were not won over by workers, workers would never find justice. There was sympathy and support for the anarchists in that moment. Samuel Gompers came out to their defense. He became the head of the American Federation of Labor in December 1886. But Gompers and the AFL and the craft unions that became affiliated with that quickly came to realize that the association with May 1st and Haymarket 
didn't necessarily help them advance their goals because they were attempting to get public support for the existence of unions. Mm -hmm. And so it was very easy for employers and more conservative Americans to smear the labor movement as illegitimate by associating it with the anarchists. May Day itself seemed to have become associated with red organizations, communism. Many might have guessed that the entire holiday was invented in Moscow. Yes, exactly. May 1st takes on an international component earlier than you might think. In 1889, when socialists are meeting in Paris, representatives from the AFL attended and spoke of May 1st, 1886, Even though it didn't secure the eight-hour day forever, the struggle continued. Pulling workers together in a united demand was appealing to the socialists in Europe. And they said, you know what? Starting in 1890, we're going to do the same thing. And European socialists began to use May Day, May 1st, for their labor demands. And so it continues to this day, unlike here. Exactly. By 1903... The AFL doesn't want to go near May Day with a 10-foot pole. It's been urging its members to churn out instead on the September Labor Day. So what's the difference between May Day and Labor Day? Mm. Well, May Day was becoming known as International Workers' Day in the 1890s. Labor Day began in 1882 here in New York, launched by Matthew McGuire, who was a, a machinist and a socialist from Brooklyn who had a very radical vision So it was a precursor yes. to May yes. Day. and had nothing to do with the eight-hour day. It had, in, in essence, a more broader utopian vision. It starts out radical, but the AFL rises, and it takes over this event and shapes it to suit its own goals. But how did its message differ from May Day? The AFL termed Labor Day, Labor's National Day. There was very much an emphasis on the national connection, that these workers who turned out on Labor Day were patriotic, were American. And it becomes part of the, the AFL distancing itself from May Day, which was becoming known as International Workers' Day. There's another holiday that we roundly ignore that is marked on May 1st. That's Loyalty Day. Mm. Loyalty Day emerges... Post-World War II, May 1st is chosen specifically to counter any attempts to revive radical May Day demonstrations. The veterans of foreign wars took the lead. They were supported by different fraternal organizations, the Catholic Church, John Birch Society, and spoke in the newspaper coverage of how they were seeking to walk the communists off the streets. They worked with city officials to have the supporters of Loyalty Day get the parade permits. Mm -hmm. And so Loyalty Day becomes a part of the way in which the history of May Day in the United States is forgotten. It's a part of the story of this construction of a Cold War Americanism. How long does it last? By the mid-50s, the Communist Party and the left-led unions dwindled due to the prosecution of the Communist Party leaders under the Smith Act in 1949. They didn't take to the streets, so there was no need yeah. to counter them. Right. And the, wor the workers in the left-led unions really struggled with this. I have really dramatic accounts of workers in District 65 here in New York, which was a union that was left-led and had ties to the Communist Party. And What did they do? Retail, wholesale, and uh, warehouse workers. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a really moving account. In 1946, 
District 65 workers were holding a meeting and they were debating, you know, can we continue to support these May Day parades? You know, the union was facing pressures on all sides to purge its ranks of communists. But one worker said at this meeting, most labor people know that May Day started in America. Therefore, I think that we should study more about these May Day parades and labor history and make sure that we know before we can accuse ourselves and our labor of following some foreign ideology or stuff like that. I think that May Day is our day, and we have to point out to the wealthy people in America that we are united and we will stop them from exploiting us. Hmm. And so there was real passion. I mean, these workers had that memory, and they hadn't lost it yet in the late 40s. If we go back to the 1880s, really just after the Civil War maybe, there was this struggle to define what it means to be American, what it means to be loyal, Mm. what it means to be patriotic. Yes, May Day existed in that context from the very beginning. Some of them were navigating a hybrid radical American identity. They didn't want to cede control over what the Stars and Stripes meant to opponents of organized labor. They staunchly defended their right to carry the American flag with their red flags. The Socialist Labor Party members in New York in the 1890s passing resolutions that they were going to carry the American flag into Union Square to claim that flag in an era where In 1893, Flag Day becomes a holiday. The Pledge of Allegiance attempts in public schools to assimilate children of immigrants. Anxiety over 25 million immigrants coming to the United States between 1865 and 1920. These workers and these radicals are smack in the middle of that story because they are mostly immigrants. (laughs) You were talking about... The Socialist Party in New York, Morris Hillquit was the leader of the Socialist Party at the time. He wrote an editorial that was published in The Call, the Socialist Party newspaper, responding to criticisms launched at the Socialist Party, critics who said, how dare they, how dare those socialists carry the stars and stripes alongside the red flag? The red flag is the flag of bloodshed and violence. And Hillquit retorted, The red flag is the flag of brotherhood and that we have a right to carry the stars and stripes. And it's those who are criticizing us, who long pawns the stars to the trusts and monopolies and that their stripes were the stripes of prison garb. And the black flag of the pirate was a more appropriate emblem for them. (laughs) Their carrying the American flag didn't mean they were subscribing to the more mainstream notion of the flag as an unquestioned loyalty to the country. They were carrying it with the goal of trying to make America be true to itself. Their understanding of what that meant, that the revolution of 1776 needed to be extended into the economic sphere. They actually felt a duty, in a way, to carry the flag. When we talk about this perpetual perennial argument over what is patriotism, Aaron Copland, our Mm. quintessential American composer, was wrestling with the issue of patriotism all the time. Theme for the common man. He even wrote a song called Into the Streets on May 1st. Mm. So could you see the tug of war over May 1st, whether it's a loyalty day or a day for labor, a tug of war over America's identity? I do think you're right. May Day became a bit of a lightning rod around this central issue of who has a right to consider themselves American and who has a right to define what that means. And I say in my book that, you know, these workers who wanted to carry both the American flag and the red flag, they didn't need the daughters of the American Revolution telling them what that flag meant. They took it up themselves and they gave it meaning that they wanted in the streets on May Day. Donna, thank you very much. 
Thank you. <laughs> Donna Haverty-Stack is author of the book, America's Forgotten Holiday, May Day and Nationalism, 1867 to 1960. Now, you may have heard us mention Aaron Copeland's Into the Streets May 1st when our producer and WNYC's archivists went hunting for it to use in the segment that came up empty. It seems it has never been professionally recorded since it was first published in the 1935 Workers' Songbook. And in a moment, you'll hear why. It invokes hammers and sickles, and also it's really hard to sing— but we decided to record it ourselves with the able assistance of our own producer, John Hanrahan, and WNYC engineer, Irene Trudell. Thanks also to Karen Frillman and Jim O'Grady, who lent their voices to our chorus. And without further ado, we present Into the Streets, May 1st. Into the Streets, May 1st, into the That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leah Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asla Chaturvedi. We had more help from Zandra Ellen and Sharina Ong. This is Sharina's last week with us. Thank you very much. Our technical directors, Jennifer Munson, our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.